Welcome to episode two of Sage's Focus on MassCom podcast. For those of you who missed episode one, I'm Vicki Velasquez, the product marketing manager for communication and media studies at Sage Publishing, and I'm joined again by Sage author Vince Velock. In this installment, we'll discuss the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in education, and specifically how DEI is being incorporated into the study of mass communication. If you missed part one, you can find that listed in the Sage College Publishing Podcast. Thanks for joining me for another episode, Vince. It's always great to be here, Vicki. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was really great to talk to you last time about the state of the mass communication field. Today, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on DEI and mass communication. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. So let's go ahead and get started. So why do you think DEI is important in education? Well, I think that on the most basic level, the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really about getting the broadest possible set of perspectives on an array of topics that matter to us you know, all of us in society. And these core values help us to better understand not just our own view on an issue, but how others view it and why they view it that way. Now, I think this allows for us to kind of question our own views to either recalibrate how we think about an issue based on what other people are are introducing to us, or in some cases to solidify our own sense of what we tend to believe because we're testing our ideas against those competing ones. When we keep our focus really narrow, I think we eliminate perspectives from people who might not be of, say, our social group, our race, our abilities, our gender, or our sexual orientation, or any one of a number of other areas. And what we do at that point is we eliminate our ability to grow and learn in an effective way. So maybe to put it another way, I only know what it is to live the life that I have in my own skin and kind of with my own soul. So I have no way of knowing if it's, you know, the best way or the worst way to do that, but it's pretty much what I've got. I need those other people who have experienced life in their own ways to kind of help me to understand more about society on the whole and kind of where I fit and how I fit into it. And what that really allows me to do is to grow and change in a much more effective way than if I just kind of keep plodding along with my head down. Now, from a student perspective, I think that broadening the pool of perspectives and the topics and the coverage can really help that student better relate to the material that directly impacts them. So I'll, I'll pull back for a moment and give you an example in a much simpler way. If you go back to the first book uh, that I wrote, uh, it was Dynamics and Media Writing. So it was for media students in news uh, paper kind of web kind of style writing. There was broadcast, there was public relations, there was advertising and so forth. And when I got here and I started teaching out of the book that was provided for me before I wrote one, it kind of had all these important things for anybody in any area of media. But it only talked about newspapers, really. It, it was like newspapers are the golden god. There is none higher. And they kind of shortchanged public relations and advertising and either marginalized them or disparaged them. So when I was using that book and I was introducing a topic, say tighter writing or interviewing or something, and I had a PR or an ad kit in that class and they were using that book, they'd look at me and say, yeah, but I'm not going into news. This doesn't matter to me. 
Well, yes, it really did matter to you, but I couldn't point to something in that book that said, here is you, here is how this skill is going to apply to you. And because I couldn't do that, that really fell on deaf ears. So when I wrote the Dynamics of Media Writing book, I wrote it as a much more inclusive text using examples from all media types and all platforms so that students could read the book and see an important skill and go, oh, yeah, that's me. That's my area. I understand that better now. So if we want to then shift back towards that broader discussion of DEI, if we don't have a table in which a wide array of diverse people are present and equally included, students can look at a topic that would clearly matter to them and say, yeah, but that's not me. And that's not really helpful to anybody. Right. Again, you want your students to be engaged with what they're learning and they want to see their experiences reflected. I mean, that's in anything we read. I know for me, if I'm watching even a show or reading a book, you want to relate to the characters or to the people. It's the same with education, I imagine. Absolutely. And I think that the more that any individual can see themselves represented um, as part of a larger whole of broader representation, they can then say, all right, I'm, I'm buying into the broader concept that's being discussed here as opposed to, well, that's for somebody else, that's not for me. Especially when talking about the intro MassCom course where you might have MassCom majors, you might also have students from other majors and disciplines, so you want them to be just as engaged with the content. Absolutely, and engaging students can feel difficult, but again, I go back to what I talk about with audience centricity. So when I see the audience, I think to myself, who is out there and what is of interest or necessity to them? And then how can I take this information and help them to value it and apply it to what they do and who they are? And that really increases engagement as opposed to I'm going to lecture off the same notes I've had since about 1999. And these Mm -hmm. things are going to stick or they're not. And I don't have to care either way. It's just going to be on the test. Yeah. We briefly talked about social media in part one, but related to this topic, what role does social media play in terms of DEI? Do you feel it's largely positive or negative? You know, that's a tough one uh, because this topic is really big and there are a lot of moving parts within that kind of a question. So it's really hard to say Uh, in any kind of definitive way. What I can say is that I think in a lot of ways, social media has value in DEI in the same way that it has in so many other areas that have often been marginalized because it allows people the opportunity to have a voice and to have that voice amplified through that power of person-to-person communication. And that can then be shared amongst people for the benefit of a larger group. Uh, Now that said, you know, the old adage goes, a lie can run a mile while the truth is still lacing up its shoes. So when people have a very narrow view of what DEI is in their minds, or if they have a general hostility towards any topic, social media can really do a lot of damage to people because if they're not willing to think critically about a topic at hand, they can kind of end up in this negative bandwagoning on a topic, regardless of what it is. But, you know, I think in a lot of ways, they don't really have a very true understanding of what it is or why we're discussing it. And so I think that that's important 
when it comes to social media, again, to be a critical thinker, understanding mm -hmm. that yeah. anybody with an internet connection and an idea can step up to the mic. So we now have to think a lot harder about who is saying what and how real that really is. Yeah, not taking things, you know, just for face value. Again, having that kind of critical consumer lens, right, when you're looking at media. Right. If we don't have the ability to question what we're seeing, you know, we can very easily be manipulated and or we can very easily miss out on opportunities that are really important to us. But we're told, no, don't don't bother looking over there. And if, if we just kind of you know carry on as we carry on, we, we can miss a lot. Yeah. And how have you seen DEI evolve in the classroom? You know, I think there's a lot uh, over the time that I've been in the classroom, when I, I, I started looking back and realizing how much of my life I've spent in a classroom, it really spans a lot of area. But there are two bigger ones that I think are important that I can really kind of put a finger on. The first is, as instructors, we're now more aware of it than we ever were before, which allows us to better set up our classes. You know, even in the smallest ways, and those small ways can even make a big difference. So, for example, when I'd be writing a book and I had to use an example or I had to write, you know, some sort of, for instance, in there, I would use names with which I was familiar. So I would use John or Jane or Bill or Sally or whatever. And, you know, that kind of stuff would go in the book and it would go in the ancillary material for instructors. And I remember having one instructor uh, reach out to me and say, you know, do you mind that I'm changing the names in my examples because I'm teaching students and it's about 80% Latino Latina and those names aren't as familiar as some of the names that I've been using. And I thought, well, no, that's great. You know, that's, that's really good because again, once you see a reflection of yourself, you're more likely mm -hmm. to feel an attachment and an engagement. Um, and it, the, the other thing though, is it really never dawned on me at the time that, oh, Okay, I thought I was just trying to be universal. It turned out I wasn't being universal at all. So when I started doing another book or when I started revising a book, I, I started looking for names of all sorts of backgrounds and trying to find these wide array of names that might reflect students of different backgrounds and things along those lines. So in that awareness, what I really find myself doing is reflecting on the things I did and the way that I did them, so I could say to myself, am I really reaching the students where they are in all of the appropriate ways possible, or am I kind of stuck in my own kind of, well, this is the way I've always done it kind of approach. Now, secondly, I think we've started to be more integrative in our approach to DEI, so it really becomes a little less of what I call a specialty thing. Uh, a good friend of mine had a t-shirt that I liked. She would wear it a lot and it said, Black History Month is all year long. And her point was that we shouldn't kind of cordon off parts of a year or parts of a class or parts of anything and say, okay, now we're gonna learn the race, the gender, the ethnicity, the whatever stuff. And then let's get back to normal stuff. Because in doing that, we really do kind of create these kind of borders and these barriers to that more integrative inclusiveness that DEI really strives for. So instead, what I'd like to do, and I know that a lot of uh, my colleagues like to do, 
is try to talk about things in a more integrative way. So, mm -hmm. for example, when I was working through the the mass comm book, you know, it wasn't like, OK, let's cordon off this area for the history of the black press or let's cordon off this area for black innovative innovators in um, you know, video games, or let's cordon off this area for women. What it was, was I started looking at all of the things that were happening simultaneously, but that had often been ignored or in other ways, kind of certain people got overshadowed. And I just kind of told those stories together with the idea of these things were all happening at the same time. And these people from all of these different backgrounds and these, you know, these diverse kinds of experiences we're all playing a role at some level in building what we now see today. So the way I like to think about it is just because we haven't heard it before doesn't mean it didn't happen that way. So let's make sure that we're giving the biggest and widest possible view of how certain things occurred, especially in the field of mass communication. Right. Which leads to, you know, more inclusive, integrative text and better experience for your students reading I, I it. Do you think so? I think that, again, seeing yourself in the things that you're being asked to study really does kind of bring something home in a very different way. But also knowing that there is value in what is being created or what was being discovered by whoever discovered it is something that can be very helpful to students. So it's not so much of the, again, let's cordon off an area and say, okay, this was the investment that we made in this particular race, group, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and now let's get back to some other stuff. It's more of a way to be able to see who you are as part of the larger society, which is, I think, what diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about. How yep. are we all part of the same big society and being able to move forward. Exactly. And speaking of moving forward, where do you see DEI headed in both the near and distant future, both in the media and in the field of mass communication overall? Wow. Um, that's a tough one because I really do think in a lot of ways this kind of comes down to how is DEI framed in the larger society and how is society going to react to that framing? So I gave you my perspective earlier in that idea of what value it has and how it plays and how I tend to see it. And from my perspective and, and through my lens, I think we are seeing some progress in some ways and we're seeing some regression in others. But if you look back over time, no kind of development of any kind, no kind of growth of any kind, was ever just a straight line, um, especially to change, particularly when it comes to a concept as very complex and wide-reaching as this. What I can say is that there are things I have seen in my lifetime that have changed in terms of how the media approached things uh, that do show progress over time. So we don't make random uh, references to people based on their race or their sexual orientation. Um, I was watching a um, 60 Minutes episode from the, the mid to late 80s, and I was struck by how even then those journalists that a lot of people aspired to be like 
we're using phrases or words or descriptors that today would really you know kind of stun us and say oh my god you can't do that that's not that's not appropriate yeah. that's not how we treat other people but at the time it was well this is just the style that we use um i remember reading old newspapers when you know somebody would die uh if it was a woman and she was married you wouldn't be referred to as you know jane smith died it would be mrs john smith died um and and we stopped doing that too for for very good reasons now, that's not to say we're where we need to be uh, at all, but I think one of the things that's important is to understand that if we deny that progress actually has occurred in, in any kind of way, we really do overlook the efforts of so many people who have made these inroads and have worked hard to create a place for themselves and for others. So the phrase, we're getting there, kind of does apply in some ways. and how far we're getting and how far we have to go, well, that's often a matter of opinion. But simply put, I think, to answer your question, I'd like to think that in the near future, we're still going to be having debates or discussions over what kind of verbiage to use in what situations, how they relate to certain uh, groups or topics or what have you. Um, and I think that that's going to continue to move our progress slowly along. What I'd really like to think about in the distant future is that people will look back at where we are now and kind of have this moment of, wow, uh, that's that's how that used to be. So I, I think back to when I was a kid, you know, I, I look back at the cartoons that they used to put on reruns from the 1960s and I'd be watching the Flintstones and Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble would like take a break and go behind the house and start chain smoking packs of Winston cigarettes because Winston <laughs> is a sponsor of, you know, the program. And they're like, yeah, this is really great stuff. And they're smoking away. I look at that and I'm like, I can't believe that that <laughs> happened. And I guess my hope is that where we are now, by the time the future kind of gets into that distant future, people will look back at us with this look of incredibility going, wow, that used to happen. Wow, look how far we've come. That would be nice. Yes, that definitely would be nice. Well, thank you so much, Vince, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's such a pleasure to talk with Sage's authors and get insights from those who are directly impacting students. Do you have any final thoughts or parting words you want to share before we sign off? Um, sure. I think one of the things that I like to look at is when we're talking about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they really do resonate back to what you were taught as a little kid. Inclusion, make sure everybody can play. Equity, you know, you treat everybody the, the way that you would want to be treated. You know, diversity, don't, you know, don't don't push somebody out of the out of the game because, you know, you look at them and you say, well, you're not like me. I mean, we learned this stuff in kindergarten and somewhere along the way, I think it just got, you know, overly complex. But in the simplest of forms, it's about being, you know, inclusive to the point of making sure that everybody has the opportunity to express themselves in a way where they feel part of the larger process. And I, I, I can't think of a more important thing. Yes, exactly. Thanks again for a wonderful two-part discussion, Vince. That concludes episode two of Sage's Focus on MassCom podcast. 
Look forward to more content from the Sage College Publishing Podcast channel, including more MassCom-focused conversations. Make sure to subscribe to get the latest updates, and we'll see you in the next episode.